2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now listen, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. How do we navigate these tumultuous times in which we live? Paul says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab your seats. Let's conclude it, session number eight in our Future Church series. Here's what we've done for those of you that are new or just visiting this morning. Each week, we have been exploring eight unique challenges that we face as late modern Christians in the West. And each week, we have rolled out a successive practice, an embodied Christian practice in the way of Jesus that is specifically designed to counterform us in the contours of God's kingdom versus the way that the world tries to form us. So just by way of very brief recap, in a culture of exhaustion, frenetic pacing, where everybody has this low-grade tiredness constantly plaguing us, we as the community of Jesus practice weekly Sabbath. We take a full day off every week to celebrate, contemplate, worship, and delight, and become a people of rest. In a culture of careerism, we practice vocation. No matter where we work as Christians, we are ruling as God's representatives. We are cultivating creation. We are caring for the other. In this current cultural moment of outrage that we find ourselves in, we as Christians, we practice embodied silence and solitude. This enables us to source our words and to behave our ways in the world from a non-anxious presence. Number four, in a culture of individualism, we practice community, becoming a network of tightly knit relationships here in the city. In a culture of consumerism, as Christians, we are practicing generosity and justice that the least of us would be provided for. In a culture of moral relativism, that was a fun one, we practice fasting, when things get morally and ethically strange, we quit eating as Christians. How's that for you? And this is our primary means as for, for hungering for God's holiness in submission to his transcendent moral authority. In a culture of hostile polarization, we practice lavish hospitality. Our goal is to make the stranger our guest and to make the enemy our family, thus becoming peacemakers, makers of peace, peace. 
Now, this morning, we're going to capstone this eight-part series with this topic, becoming a community of orthodoxy in a culture of ideological idolatry. That's quite a mouthful. Try to say that 10 times fast. We want to become a community of orthodoxy. I'm going to explain all of this in a culture of ideological idolatry. Get ready for some definitions so we can track with where we're going through this session. First of all, let's ask the question, what is an ideology? What is an ideology and why are ideologies in and of themselves idolatrous? What is idolatry? What is ideology? And why are ideologies idolatrous? <laughs> Webster's defines an ideology as this. It is a manner or the content of thinking characteristic of an individual group or culture. It's the integrated assertions, theories, and aims that constitute a socio-political program. An ideology is a systematic body of concepts that a whole culture carries collectively in their imagination, especially about how life should be lived or how culture should be formed. Now, given this broad definition of ideology, all of those broad definitions, one might say, isn't Christianity just an ideology in and of itself? It's just a concept about how life is lived and how we should go about our days. Catholic writer Roger Olson, he answers saying this, true Christianity, Christianity centered around and built on the message and character of Jesus cannot be an ideology in the classical sense of the word. Christian ideology is an oxymoron. True, authentic, Jesus-centered Christianity is an anti-ideological belief system. Note that down, write that down, let that lodge into your brains. True Christianity is actually anti-ideological. Olson goes on and he says, yes, of course, true. Authentic Christianity includes belief in something called the kingdom of God, which sounds to many people, including Christians, like an ideology, but it isn't. It is a Christ-centered vision of a social order without mastery over that social order, okay? Olson says, it is not, as with all ideologies, a humanly contrived socio-political solution to all human problems to be imposed politically. All true ideology is idolatry from a Christian perspective, and that is exactly why true, authentic Christianity must exclude and resist all ideologies. So Olson gets right to the kernel of things. Ideologies, these concepts that control culture, they are idolatrous for Christians because they come from the minds of humans. They are humanly contrived, and they use only human means to impose their will, to establish their will on the masses. Olson calls true Christianity what we're calling the way of Jesus, an anti-ideology. And the reason it's an anti-ideology is because our way, our culture, our understanding of the world is framed on the message of Jesus himself, which is not of this world and not empowered by human ideas and ways. Does that make sense? Everybody track with me. It's, it's going to get just deep in here. So track with me, please. What ideologies do, this is so important that we all grasp this this morning because we're all being influenced by this. Ideologies move the center of gravity from God's moral reasoning and God's moral authority to humans' moral reasoning and humans' moral authority. And when these ideologies, these humanly contrived concepts of how the world should be and how the world should be ordered, when these ideologies become the ultimate thing, 
when they become the only way that we can actually live our lives, then they become like little gods. We subtly begin to put our faith not in Jesus and his way, but in the ideologies of the day. We subtly begin to pledge our allegiance not to Jesus as our king, but to these ideologies. And the Bible describes this shift in allegiance from God to merely human ideas as idolatry. Has everybody tracked with that so far? When we shift our allegiance from God and his ways, Jesus and his way, to humanly contrived ways of doing things, we are on the verge of committing idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of false gods. Idolatry is simply the worship of false god, gods. And so ideologies, friends, are the new religions of our day. They are, these ideologies are the new gods by which many are ordering their lives, finding their identity and their purpose, and devoting themselves to with sacrificial abandon and worship. All of us are being formed by something. All of us are devoted to something. All of us frame the world and the way we understand the world by something. The question is, by what? And ideologies have taken on a new power in our cultural moment as we have divorced ourselves from God and his ways, the human heart is designed to worship. And so we've begun to worship and pledge our allegiance to these ideologies. Ideologies are the idolatry of this generation. And so for us, the temptation is not going to be to abandon Jesus and become atheists. For us, the temptation is to begin to pollute the way of Jesus with these ideologies, to worship other gods and the forms of these ideologies. And this is what Jesus warned us about. He actually cautioned his believers, saying, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Leaven is yeast that goes into the loaf of bread and saturates the whole loaf of bread. Jesus was likening the leaven or the teachings, the teachings of the Sadducees and the Pharisees to this dangerous leaven. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were the first century religious and political authorities of Jesus' day, and they had corrupted the pure way of Torah, of Yahweh, of the Old Testament, because they had corrupted and combined the way of God with their own political power, with their own religious ideas. Does that make sense, what they were doing? And Jesus said, beware of that leaven. Paul himself, as we read, said this in warning to the churches, People will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And friends, all of our ears are itching. We want to hear certain things said, and we certainly don't want to hear other things that are going to be said even on a Sunday morning like, today, ah, here it comes. <laughs> Ideological corruption comes, my friends, from both the political left and the right in our current moment as Christians. I'm going to show us some pictures of what myself and this cohort of leaders that I'm a part of and this network of churches that I'm a part of, we consider these following pictures to be images of some of the most dangerous and corrupting ideologies wounding the church in our current moment. Everybody take a deep breath into your bellies. I'm not here to offend or upset anyone. I am here to declare what is forming you, the way of Jesus or these ideologies? Let's start on the right. Picture number one. This is from the storming of the Capitol at the turn of the year. Notice the cross, flags, people praying, all in the midst of this pretty extensive act of violence. Picture number two. 
Notice this man here, he's holding the Bible uh, with the imagery of death surrounding him. Uh, as for the first time in American history, the, the passing of power in this country was usurped in a, in a, in a non-peaceful way. Uh, pick number three. Notice the flag, Jesus is my savior, but Trump is my president. That's fine, I think that's true. But shortly after this, a police officer, a Capitol Hill police officer was beat to death with one of these flagpoles. Okay, so what we're seeing here in these pictures, we are seeing the blatant use of Christian symbols, crosses, Bibles, prayer, all to be used as imagery while used in the midst of violent acts that were blatantly unchristian. Okay, another deep breath. <laughs> I don't know how you're feeling right now. Maybe anger, maybe, maybe confused, maybe angry at me. Maybe for some of you, it's photos like those where you're like, that's why I'm not a Christian. That's why I don't want to associate with the church. That's why I'm deconstructing right now. That's why I'm struggling with Christianity. Maybe for some of us in this room, you see those pictures and you're like, yeah, this is where our country is and that is exactly what Christians should be doing. Let's look at the other side as well because corruption and ideology comes not only from the right but also from the left. Pick number four. Notice you have the image of a heart and a cross trying to make the argument that Jesus is about taking the life within the womb of a woman. Next picture, common sight, church flying the pride flag. We have a church just right across the way from us. Next picture. This is the rainbow clerical collar. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the traditional priest's collar, but what we have here is for hundreds of years, the original collar of the priest in the church was was it was a white collar, and that white collar was actually a, a symbolism. It was an expression of that priest's call to, to celibacy. And so with the progressive left movement on, on the right, you have the violent acts usurping the passing of peace in the name of Jesus, violent acts. And on the left, you have the abandonment of sexual ethics of Jesus now being celebrated and touted as, as biblical. Okay, another deep breath into our bellies. What we have here is the basic symbols of crosses and Bibles and priestly vestments essentially being hijacked in our generation and directly contradicting the historic vision of Jesus for sexuality and human flourishing. If you're still with me, maybe right now you're confused about how these images, why would these images, what does sexuality have to do with Jesus' holiness and human flourishing? Or maybe there's a sense of anger or offense or discomfort. Or maybe a room like this that's filled with very intelligent people, you're right now listing out all the things. Well, Dan, you didn't say this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And, you know, if you guys would give me three hours on a Sunday morning, we could sit here and talk through all the this and this and this and this. All I wanted to do was give you an opportunity to see where we are convinced as leaders of the church in this generation, on the right and the left, there are corruption points within the church that are doing damage to the way of Jesus. We can talk through the 8 million questions that those pictures just raised for you in community and together, but what I wanted you to see is how dangerous this is and how overwhelmingly precarious is the position of the church in this generation. Because these images highlight for our generation of the church the leaven of the false teachings of the political and the social powers of our day corrupting the way of Jesus. 
These images are proving Paul's prophecy true, that in the last days there are going to be those that will turn to false teachers. You and I will be tempted to do the same thing, to turn to false teachers, to hear what our ears want to hear, to do things the way that we want to do things, mixing it up with just a touch of Jesus involved in it. So then it looks like it's Jesus-y, but it's not. And friends, here in the city of San Diego, we are a melting pot of these ideologies. From left to right across the whole spectrum, we swim in a swimming pool of left to right ideologies. Our city is actually an intersection of like super progressive universities and urban areas like where I live in South Park. And then we have a lot of immigration. We have a lot of military circulation, which brings in left and right policies and politics. We have generations of wealth in certain pockets, generations of poverty in others. And then you take all of this mixture of ideology, you add some really incredible weather, good waves, a taco in one hand, a corona in the other, and it's quite a, it's quite a party. <laughs> right here in this tiny little church plant, tiny little church plant, barely getting her feet under her. Two years in, I've been shocked that a community of 150 people, you could have this far of a spread of, I sit this far left in my understanding of the way that the world should work, and I sit this far right, sitting right in a home together, having a meal together. And one might say, ooh, that sounds like a recipe for chaos. Could be. It also could be a recipe for the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are laboring to be a clearly unified community of people around the anti-ideology of Jesus, his way, and his kingdom. And it is terribly difficult. It is constantly wounding. It requires the absorption of what we perceive to be wrong into our own world and reality for the sake of the other, pressing into Jesus and his kingdom. So how, how, how in a world of such polarized ideologies, such infiltration in the church of these corrupting forces into the way of Jesus, Jesus, how are we to live in this intensive age of ideology? Here's what Paul commanded. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. We must watch our lives and doctrine. <laughs> doctrine. We're going to go just a little bit longer today, guys, because I think I need to explain these things. Our lives is our character, our internal well-being, the way that we live our lives, but our doctrine. I'm so committed to this that beginning in January all the way through Easter, we're going to do a deep dive into what is sin, who is Satan, what is the cross. We're going to explore the great doctrines of Christianity because we must be watching over our lives and our doctrine closely. We're to be on guard, Paul says. There's to be this attentiveness. We're to be watching carefully what we believe and how what we believe is affecting our behavior. The reason somebody could beat a person to death with a flag saying, Jesus is my savior, is because that person stopped watching their character and their doctrine somewhere along the way. The reason somebody can promote and celebrate a sexual ethic that is antithetical to the sexual ethic of Jesus is somewhere along the way, there was a departure from watching one's life and obedience to Christ and his actual words very, very carefully. The key word for this set of beliefs that we subscribe to that guard us from ideology is a big word, orthodoxy. Can you guys all say that with me? Orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. It just basically means right belief. Orthodoxy. You go to the orthodontist to get your teeth right. Orthotethist. Whatever. You get it. Whatever. Orthodoxy is simply the set of beliefs where your teeth have been made right. <laughs> it's a set of beliefs of confessions and ethics and practices that have been passed down from the church for 2,000 years. 
Yes, friends, in the Protestant Western Christian world in which we live, we disagree on a ton of stuff. We disagree on evolution. We disagree on what's going to happen at the end of time. We disagree on speaking in tongues. We disagree on how communion should be administered. We disagree on about eight billion zillion things. But listen, these are secondary issues. The scriptures are very, very, very unapologetically clear on many, many things. And about those things, there is a body of truth that we can safely and humbly say, this is what Jesus believers have believed for over two millennia now. This is what's been handed to us from Jesus, the New Testament authors, the creeds, the councils, those that hammered this stuff out through definitions of heresy and orthodoxy over millennia. And this is also how followers have lived and followed Jesus for two millennia. And in that, we are all on agreement. That is what we call orthodoxy. It equals for us the way of Jesus in line with the confessing church. And what I want you all to hear and pass this on to friends that you invite to neighbor's church we are a, what would be considered an historically orthodox church. What do I mean by that? A lot of you are new believers. A lot of you are young college kids and you're, you're deconstructing or reconstructing your faith as you now understand it. Lots of us are trying to figure out what we believe and myself and the rest of the teachers on this teaching team, we work really hard every week to try to teach with humility and nuance and faithfulness. But it, I wanna be very clear. We wanna be very clear. We are not a, what has been termed progressive church here in the city. Now, some of you are like, oh, man. And some of you are like, yes. Let me also say, we are not a conservative church. Now everybody's like, <gasps> we, don't we do not align with the right or the left. We are not a right-leaning church or a left-leaning church. We're not a conservative church. We're not a progressive church. As best as we can, we are a Jesus church. We love Jesus. We are trusting, yeah, we can clap. That's, there's the scattered clap thing that happens at Neighbors. Man, we got to get some more people of color in here so you guys can just like clap and learn how to go off and loosen up a little bit. Listen, at Neighbors, and this is, this is my humble vision for us to strive towards. We want to trust in Jesus' wisdom as best we can, his intelligence, his goodness, as best as we can interpret him in prayer. We find Jesus' life and teachings, his life and teachings, the most compelling and true vision of life in this world. We want to pray more. We love Jesus' presence and peace by the Spirit. We want to be reading the scriptures and living them out. And we want to be quick to admit all the ways when we discover, wow, I think I have discovered I am wrong in the way that I've read scripture. I am wrong in the way that I have done this. But we do not want to ever apologize for our love for Jesus and our allegiance to him as Lord of all creation where we find ourselves. Jesus is the king, we believe, who died for our sins, who God raised from the dead and set at the right hand to rule over the universe. And we believe that Jesus is going to one day return to heal this world and all its ideologies. We believe that Jesus is returning to judge the righteous and the wicked and to reign forever. This is where we center ourselves, friends. We don't center ourselves in the political right or the political left. We don't identify ourselves with the progressive communities or the conservative communities where ideologies continue to corrupt this third way of Jesus. My wife and I were in Portland last week with this circle of churches that are starting up, and one of the brothers that was teaching literally said, in the day and age that we live in, the third way of Jesus is becoming like a knife-edge tightrope. Meaning what he was saying is, if I stand up here and I say Black Lives Matter, some of us say, 
oh my gosh, now all of a sudden they're going left into Marxist theory. <laughs> or if I stand up here and I say, we believe life in the womb is dignified and worthy of protection, now all of a sudden some are saying, oh, I guess that means you're just a complete Trump fanatic and probably stormed the Capitol. <laughs> you see, we've become so polarized that now the third way of Jesus is this very thin line. And it's what Jesus said would be a very narrow path upon which we are called to walk with him. Very difficult, very challenging. So how do we walk through this? What Paul does is he lays out for us as a community of people a way of living into orthodoxy. Let's start in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. We're almost done, and then we're going to go baptize people. Let's work through the text line by line. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Number one, notice Paul's tone of living in a world of polarization and ideology. Paul would come in humility. Paul would come in the gentleness of Jesus. He wasn't trying to be controlling or coercive. He was trying to appeal to the culture around him. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. There were people in the city of Corinth, just like there are people all throughout the church of Jesus today, that actually think that we are supposed to live by the standards of the world, be that politically, be that socially, be that relationally, be that sexually. The world here for Paul is a technical phrase, and it's used by Jesus and his followers in the New Testament. It's not talking about the planet Earth. It's talking about specifically these cultural practices that are influenced by Satan and opposed to God. Dr. Brashears, our mentor, says, The world is Satan's domain where his authority and values reign, though his deception makes that hard to realize. If you are of the world, then all seems right. So what we've seen here with the pictures and this kind of heavier teaching right now, is that there's a left version of the world that corrupts the church and there's a right version of the world that corrupts the church. But no matter which side we kind of gravitate towards, we're all feeling this pull of the world. And Jesus says we have to resist that pull as we live into discipleship with him. For though we live, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, though we live in the world, now notice, we do not wage war as the world does. In other words, we currently live in this ideological taco-eating, beautiful sunshine city of ideology, but we are on this tiny little tightrope, narrow path following a rabbi who said, nonviolence and enemy love is the way. Giving up your life rather than taking life is the way. He didn't defend his rights. He lost his rights at the expense of others. And so as his followers, we don't resort to violence or contempt or moral superiority or trolling on social media. We don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now that word demolish, just a few more, few more big ideas here that I really want you guys to grasp this morning. That word demolish can actually be translated deconstruct. They have divine power to deconstruct strongholds. Stay with that. Keep that. Let that log, log in there. Strongholds. Strongholds were military fortifications. And so what Paul was saying is there are actual fortifications of Satan positioned throughout our culture and in the church and even within our own lives. And so what starts out as just like a foothold 
It starts out as like a little lie that we begin to believe or a habit that we begin to engage in that we don't resist or fight against or an idea that's lodged into our brain that we don't filter through the scriptures and through community and submission to the authority of scripture and community. It starts as an idea that's not submitted to Jesus completely, transparently. That can grow into what Paul calls a fortification, a stronghold of evil that you cannot remove from your soul apart from divine power. And so Paul defines these strongholds, these satanic fortifications as two things. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension. Two things. We deconstruct arguments and we deconstruct every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Arguments, that's just basically thought patterns and every pretension, literally in the Greek, every exalted thing against Jesus and his kingdom. In other words, Paul says, we deconstruct Every ideology, every argument, every pretension, every ideology, because these ideologies are actually animated by demonic power, both right and left. Conservative ideologies and progressive ideologies are satanically moving through the world to enslave humans and to deceive humans into thinking that they're actually freeing themselves while they're being destroyed. And that's why Paul says... At the end, to cap it off, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And that is our task. We are to deconstruct these strongholds and take captive every thought in obedience to Jesus. So for Paul, the real battle is the battle for our souls, and it is won or lost in our minds. The real war is not raging between right and left, but between the kingdom of darkness and between the kingdom of God. So let's just focus in here on this idea of deconstructing for just a moment. Our generation is in a crisis of deconstruction. All around us, friends and family and people in our church community, maybe you here this morning, are just being swept up and swept into the ideologies of our time. And so what Jesus did was what we would consider good deconstruction. When Jesus said to the Bible abusers of his day, you've heard it said, but I say to you in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was deconstructing bad interpretations of scripture to get back to the heart of God. Jesus was, now track with this, Jesus was using the scriptures to tear down culture's authority over lives. Jesus was actually framing the world and using scripture to remind us of his loving authority that leads us to the actual life that we're longing for. Now compare that good deconstruction, scripture deconstructing the ideologies of the world, compare that with bad deconstruction, which does the exact opposite. Bad deconstruction uses cultural authority like these ideologies to tear down the authority of the scripture over our lives. And this is the kind of destruction and deconstruction that myself and my pastor buddies are seeing in the West across this generation like never before. Western millennials and Gen Z come to the Bible with all these ideologies of the world and they deconstruct the scripture's authority based on the ideologies of the world. Now, Deconstruction, I realize, is very complex. I don't want to diminish the necessary components of deconstruction. Doubt is normal and good, and deconstructing faith is oftentimes a helpful piece in our growth in Jesus. It can be painful. It's terribly confusing. There's no one-size-fits-all of our all-deconstructing experiences. I have a good friend, Josh Butler. He's in uh, Tempe, Arizona, 
ASU's there, huge town, lots of college folks. And Josh has distilled down what he thinks are four basic symptoms of deconstruction. Why do we deconstruct? Deconstruction is a symptom of several underlying diagnoses, each with its own prescription for healing. The four, people are deconstructing because they've been hurt by the church. I would say this is number one. Somewhere along the line, the church has hurt them. A leader, somebody in community has done something that has emotionally wounded them. Therefore, I'm deconstruct. I don't want to be part of Christianity if that's what Christianity is. Number two, poor teaching. Just downright bad teaching. (laughs) Weak teaching, ideological teaching, corrupted teaching, teaching that isn't drawn from the Bible, but that puts onto the Bible these worldly ideologies, progressive and conservative. Number three, third reason people deconstruct, justification of sin. I have seen this more than I would like to say. Somebody says about their lives, well, I know the Bible says this, but I don't believe it's sin because it just feels so right and so good. And as a good pastor or as a good community, you say, but this is going to diminish your flourishing. We're calling you to repentance. And they say, spiritual abuse. And they're out. I've seen this over and over. And I realize spiritual abuse is a real thing. I've endured it in my own life. I don't want to be insensitive to it, but I think that the tossing about of the terminology spiritual abuse is sometimes an excuse to not be held accountable for rebelling against the king who wants compassion and care for your soul. I want us to check our hearts, friends. My pastor's heart is beaten and bleeding on this issue of justification and sin. And now, finally, with Instagram... (laughs) There's a certain cultural, we all have, we, we all have, we need street cred. So you got to make sure that you're in with your friends, which means that you have to be accepted by your peers. And so there's certain terminology, certain words that make you fit into that world. And if you don't align with the right tribal vocabulary, well, canceled. You're cast out. You're cast aside. This is the moment we live in as Christians. And so to keep street cred, well, deconstruction right now gives you a lot of street cred. The only thing that our culture actually respects is deconstructing cynicism. So what are the solutions for church hurt? Josh would literally say, you've got to stick it out. This is elementary stuff, I realize, but for church hurt to be healed, you have to stay in the church and keep pressing into community. So difficult. (laughs) For poor teaching, You have to do your homework and you have to pray. And you have to ask your pastors a lot of hard questions. You have to ask me a lot of questions. You have to ask your teaching team a lot of questions. You have to come with books that you've read and blogs that you've read, not with a, hey, I've got you now, but with a, hey, I'd like to learn. Listen, I'm 20 years into this thing, been teaching the Bible for 20 years. They tell me that I mastered divinity. I went and got a degree, which is ludicrous in my mind. I spent a lot of money in six years mastering divinity. And honestly, I have more questions now than I've ever had in my entire life. I'm telling you, the nuances and the trajectories of false teaching. Satan doesn't just show up and say, I'm going to rip your heart out and destroy you. Satan is so subtle. Satan is so subtle. And I'm the first to say, I could be wrong. Why do you guys think I submit myself to a teaching team, to Dr. Brashears, to a whole host of professors who oversee my life? So that if I have blind spots somewhere along the line, in God's mercy, somebody says to me, hey, Dan, I think you're justifying sin. (laughs) Hey, Dan, I think that's some poor teaching. This is why we're yoking up with a whole circle of churches where we're like-minded around these seven convictions. We're not doing this alone. Justification of sin. 
Josh would say, repent. I think more than ever, for myself and within the church, the deconstructing church, repentance is at the core of our revival. And finally, for street cred, (laughs) if you guys ever meet Josh Butler, maybe we'll have him come teach at some point. He's incredible. He's the most happy-go-lucky, joyful guy. He's got this huge hair. He's just an amazing human being. And he he literally says for street cred, you you need to repent of your obsession with self-image. But he says it with this big smile on his face where you just like want to hug from him after he tells you to repent of your obsession with (laughs) self-image. For those of you that are deconstructing right now, I don't want to label you. I know that this may not be a one-size-fits-all. It's definitely not. All of us are on our own journeys, and we're all asking these hard questions. Some of you in this room, because I know you and I love you so much, I know that you're in the process of constructing. You're like me when you first became a Christian. You're like, oh, whoa, wow, I got to put that into the brick I call the castle of my life. That's a weird brick to put in there, but I'll do it. You're constructing. And I want to admonish you to continue on in the process. But all of us will have our faith tested. But if you're experiencing the tearing down of your faith, I want to appeal to you to return to the love of God. Return to the love of God and take every thought captive. We cannot allow in this generation progressive and conservative ideologies to take footholds in our souls. This is why we press each other into community. This is why we press each other into Sunday morning teachings, because we are seeking the will of God. And so if you find yourself there today saying, well, I think I've absorbed some ideological footholds in my own soul. What am I to do? This is Paul's call in the text. Paul calls us as Jesus followers to focus our deconstructionist impulse, not on the orthodox way of Jesus. There should be a slide for this, Nyla. Um, But on the ideologies of the world right here. Paul calls us as Jesus followers to take that that deconstructionist impulse where I'm going to come to the Bible, I'm going to tell the Bible that my ideologies should make the Bible say this. Paul says instead, we're to take that ideological impulse towards deconstruction and what Tim Keller says is doubt our doubts. We're to begin to question it. We're to focus on deconstructing our ideologies and always be guarding and looking for where trajectories are off. I'm just going to illustrate this from my personal life. Friends, I have spent many, 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 many years doubting and deconstructing. I I think my whole Christian practice in many ways has been a wrestling against deconstruction. I was a geology major in college, and the first church I was ever a part of told me that the earth had been created in 6,000 years ago, and and it had all been done in six days. I I was just like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) I I have spent over and over and over so many years coming up to -to face-to-face with these places in Scripture that are so confusing, so overwhelming, don't make any sense to me, and then have cast me into this world of deep doubt. But where I'm at now after 20 years of walking with Jesus is, the only way I can describe it is, I used to approach the world and say, okay, this situation, this idea, this circumstance, not good. Therefore, I'm deconstructing what God says about himself. God says in the scriptures, he's good and he is love and he is in control. This situation is not good, does not feel like love and looks like it's out of control. Therefore, God, I deconstruct you. I deconstruct my Christianity. There's been a subtle shift in my life, and it just the only way I can describe it is deep surrender. 
And so instead of deconstructing what God says in Scripture, I've begun living into the world saying, first foot forward, God says he is love. God says he is in control. God says he is good. Therefore, as I look at this situation, I'm going to deconstruct my opinions and my ideas about this situation, this call, this command, this issue, this thing on the news, this thing that just happened in my life. I'm going to deconstruct it based on the authority of Scripture that says God is good, God is in love, and God is in control. If this situation is God's goodness, love, and control to teach, train, guide, or form Christ in me, how or where am I going to deconstruct the ideologies or my own opinions? Brendan Manning called this process ruthless trust. It's total surrender. It's letting go of control. It's learning to love God with all of your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And it's choosing to believe. It is choosing to believe that God has our highest good and our greatest happiness in his heart. And so we can trust him and trust him alone with our whole mind, whole body, whole heart, whole soul. And I want you to understand it's a choice. It is a choice to believe either the opinions and impulses of your own feelings and tiny little slice of this life and your grand, vast knowledge. It is a choice to trust in that more than in the sovereign God who's revealed himself in Scripture, or it is a choice to say, okay, I am a tiny little infinitesimal dust speck that God breathed life into in this infinitesimal moment of time in this huge expanse of the universe over, for some, 6,000 years, for others, billions of years. And this God says he knows it all. I'm going to choose to trust him ruthlessly, radically. This is how Jesus deconstructs the ideologies. And I want to assure you and encourage you, it makes you talk, think, and look very different than the world. Very different. You just look strange. You sound strange. You have an oddness about you. So what practice? We're wrapping it up right now. What practice are we instituting for this final challenge in our day and age? It's the practice of Scripture. Old school Bible reading. That's it. The practice of Scripture. We want to call the church to practice regular rhythms of reading, studying, meditating, discussing, memorizing, praying, taking courses on the scriptures and immersing ourselves in the scriptures that Jesus believed in and gave his life to. A daily reading program has to be part of our lives. One of the things that we want to implement in our communities, and I don't know when we're going to do this, public reading of scripture collectively. Just literally for community group one night, you sit down and you read the book of Ephesians and talk about it. Just read the book all the way through. These letters were designed to be read. Imagine having dinner at community group one night and reading through the entire gospel of John in one night. Imagine doing the entire book of Leviticus. Yeah. Yeah. The point being scripture, letting scripture begin to form your hearts and minds. And then when questions come up and challenges come up, you have community to talk with. You also have trained elders in authority that have opinions and interpretations of these scriptures that are in concert with other and can explain why we disagree with this particular interpretation or go with that particular interpretation. The other piece of practicing scripture is this, moving towards a direct removal of things that distract us or form our minds according to the ideologies of the world. So less screen time. Uh, current Christians consume 20 to 1. That is 20, 20 hours of digital media for every hour that they're being formed by some sort of Christian influence. 
And people will say, well, this sounds like brainwashing. You are being brainwashed. We are all being brainwashed by something. Something is forming our brains. And we have the choice to choose what forms our brains. Friends, as we wrap up this series, what we want to do is embody these practices. We want to Sabbath, silence and solitude. We want to fast. We want to press into community. We want to practice lavish hospitality. We want to do generosity and justice. We want to press into these practices, and we want to be reading the scriptures, informed by the scriptures, this unique countercultural formation that we would see the world as Jesus sees the world. And so as I close us, we're going to move outside. We're going to move from this teaching right into baptisms. And baptisms, friends, is, it is this, uh, this embodied practice that Christians have been involved in now for millennia. It is this expression that I am, I am, I have died in Jesus and I've been raised to new life. Therefore, I'm obeying him by symbolizing that. And as I symbolize that, going down under the waters and being raised up, I'm coming up in new life saying, I am committed to the way of Jesus. I am committed to his scriptures. I am committed to his community. I'm committed to his authority. I am new in him, radically different. Let me pray for us, and this is what we're going to do. Shua's got to move some stuff outside for worship. Whoever's being baptized today, you've got time right now to head back to the bathroom and get your shirts, and I think my wife will give you a black shirt. We're going to get changed, and then we're going to all circle around the baptismal out there. I think we've got at least four baptisms this morning, which is super cool. So let me pray for us. Father, as we wrap this up, uh, we just ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would bless and anoint this time. As we go into a month of prayer, we pray that you would hear our prayers. God, go before us and bless these souls who are saying to you now that they want, they want to express to the world their commitment to you. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would guard our community, that we would be a a people committed to radical orthodoxy, not progressive, not conservative, not Republican, not Democrat. Help us to practice the way of Jesus in this world. Help us to obey Jesus, to be compassionate and kind, to reach out to our Republican right-leaning friends, to reach out to our left-leaning Democratic friends, and to invite them into this very narrow way called the kingdom of God. I pray that you would strengthen us and give us courage to continue on the journey, to continue on the way, that we would be hot spots where heaven meets earth and that we would see our lives transformed. Father, every soul in here longs for flourishing, longs for joy. And Jesus, you promised us that you were that source of joy and peace. Give us wisdom. Incline our hearts towards truth. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.